Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today, uh, you may notice some sounds on this. I don't know if we'll edit all this out, but we are actually in the back room of Sand Hills Brewing, and uh, so there's a lot of machinery going on. And my guest today is uh, Pippin Williamson, and uh, I really wanted to talk with him for a long time because the, the path to getting this brewery set up and getting it established has been fascinating to me. It's my favorite brewery in the world. Uh, a lot of my friends feel the same way, and I have told people uh, since they were back in this back room and all you could do is come fill a growler that what these guys do with beer is nothing short of art. So, Pippin, thanks for being on today. It is my pleasure, Jason. So, tell me, let, let's just get right to it. Tell me... Why do you like beer? So there's there's a couple of answers to that. So I'm going to give you two two quick ones. The first is I I fell in love with beer as as a beverage and as a as a product and something as a consumable uh, in 2011 2012 ish uh, shortly after I graduated college and. It was never a part of my life at any point growing up until then. You know, my, my parents didn't drink beer. My None of my siblings did. Um, I had very little exposure to beer in college. You know, yeah, I was the same as just about every other college student. I went to a couple of college parties or two. But really, I never fell in love with beer at any point up until... Shortly after I graduated college, I was uh, working from home, working remotely, and I started getting into going to a couple of our local uh, area bars and breweries. In this case, it was in Lawrence, Kansas. And, and I fell in love with the ambience, and I fell in love with going out on a nice spring or summer day and sitting on the patio and having a couple and then going home. And that was kind of my introduction. I initially fell in love with a beer called Boulevard Wheat, uh, made by Boulevard Brewing Company up in Kansas City, and then just started exploring a bunch of others and suddenly realized that a passion I didn't know existed was there. And I started wanting to explore all of the different flavors and styles of beers. Uh, and it was a, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful world. It was kind of at the right time of the craft beer movement mm -hmm. in this area, for sure, because breweries were starting to open up in Kansas City and Lawrence and the, and the other areas that I was around. Um, and I was also in a really prime time of my, my work world in that I was traveling a lot. I was traveling all over the country, and so anytime I was going to another city in another state or another country, I would go and visit the, lo the local brewery in that area or, or breweries, and I just, I love the adventure. I love, it was super fun, and it just kind of exposed me to this, this world that I didn't know existed. And then the second, the second reason, or the second answer, is that um, once I fell in love with beer as a product and as a consumable, I fell in love with the craft of actually making and producing beers. Um, and that one was really by accident um, and was kind of actually my wife's fault. Um, I don't know if she regrets it today or not, but she bought me a homebrew kit for Christmas because apparently I was bored and I, I, needed, a, I needed a hobby. Um, I worked remotely on a computer and I had long hours in front of the screen and I needed something that was somewhat, somewhat tangible or that I could explore and play with. And so she bought me a homebrew kit and I made some of the worst, most mediocre beer you could possibly imagine. But I had a great time. 
I made a horrible mess in the kitchen, but it was really fun. It was, it was, it was great. And, uh, then I got connected to a couple of friends that were also starting to explore brewing on their own. And I went and spent a couple of days with them hanging out and I just fell down a rabbit hole. Uh, you know, suddenly, um, I've always liked chemistry, but I have never had a really strong background or, or knowledge of any, any of the, the, any of the sciences, um, related to brewing, definitely no food sciences, no chemistry, no fermentation arts, but I loved the, uh, very approachable science aspects of brewing where, you know, I could start experimenting with different grains. I could experiment with different yeasts and I could experiment with different temperatures and it just, I don't know. It was just something that I really fell in love with and it kind of took over my basement and it took over my garage. And, uh, so it was great. Well, let, let's talk about, there's a couple other things I want to get to, but this is, this seems like a good time to get right to this because there, there's a lot to brewing beer. And I know you and I have had a couple of conversations to talk about how kind of specific you've been about it. Even going down to, I know you've done like a chemical profile mm-hmm. of your water to make sure that no matter what you can create, recreate that water. Yes. Um, but for, for people out there who don't know anything about the beer brewing process, can you kind of walk us through some of that a little bit? So it's, First of all, the process of brewing beer is actually dramatically simpler than I think some people imagine it to be. We it's it's really no it's not that different from say baking a cake. Um, we start with our grain, and those are usually barley and wheat, and sometimes oats or corn or a few other grains. We soak it in water, and we extract flavors and sugars out of that grain. Then we take the extracted sugars and flavors, we boil it, we sterilize it, we do a cooking process on it. During that cooking process, we add in other ingredients, usually hops, uh, but sometimes spices and herbs uh, and other, or other, agent, other, other flavoring agents. We usually boil it for about an hour, and then after that, we transfer it into a vessel where we add yeast to it, and we allow the yeast to consume all the sugars. The, the yeast is a micro-living organism, and it consumes sugars and produces alcohol. That process takes about two weeks or so. Uh, and then during that fermentation process, we may or may not add additional hops or other ingredients, fruits, for example, uh, based on the beer that we're creating. And then for the vast majority of beers, it's about a two-week process. Uh, once it goes through the fermentation process, we, we kind of go through a conditioning stage where we chill the beer down, we carbonate it, we get rid of sediment and clarify the beer, and then once it's carbonated, we put it into a package, whether that be a can, a bottle, or a keg, and it's ready to serve. Mm-hmm. And it's usually about a two-week process. But there are some beers that, and I talked earlier about you guys being artful with your beers, so there are things you do, you barrel-age yep. beers, you throw... Um, Sandhill plums, yep. you know that's now the state fruit. Um, but you, we, you, you make a kind of a mash out of that. And you put that in, and then that extends that a little bit because you're always kind of Absolutely. playing with things. So right? you know, when I say it takes about two weeks for a beer, that's those are our what we would consider kind of our standard, our everyday beers that we make throughout the year. Sometimes we're one-off batches, but we also do a lot of experimentation, a lot of specialty beers where. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a fruit. Um, let's let's pick on sample plums for a moment, and we will create a base beer for that, and then we'll add the fruit to the beer and allow it to go through a refermentation process where it's extracting colors and flavors and additional sugars out of the fruit, uh, and 
creating something completely different than what the base beard was. And that can definitely extend that time. Sometimes it extends it by a week. Sometimes it extends it by 18 plus months. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of oak aging with beers where we take oak barrels that typically come from a winery or a distillery, uh, sometimes bourbon barrels, scotch barrels, tequila barrels, red wine, white wine, brandy, etc. cetera. Uh, and we'll take a beer based off, we'll, we'll pick a, we'll take a, a barrel and then based on what that barrel is, you know, whether it's a bourbon barrel or a red wine barrel, we'll pick a beer that's going to go into that and it will go through an aging process in the barrel where it slowly extracts character out of the barrel. Uh, so it's extracting some of the previous spirits it is doing some micro-oxidation, and it's also extracting characters from the wood itself. That process can be anywhere from one month at minimum, typically, up to 24 plus months. Um, I think our oldest one that we've ever done is about three years. Three-year process where it's kind of curing and aging, yep. and what beer was that? Well, it's probably still in the barrel. <laughs> uh, so with a, we've got several. So one, for example, is we have a, inside of our tap room, uh, we have what's called a food, which is a large oak barrel. Uh, ours is about a 500 gallon barrel. And that was, we, we got that into the building right before we opened the tap room in October, 2018. So we got it in the first week or so of October and we filled it up and it has never been emptied to this day. Uh, and so we're, you know, it's about, three and a half, almost four, four years since then. Uh, we've never emptied it, but what we do is we pull a little bit out and we put new beer in. And so we do what's called kind of a Solera project, which is a term that comes from the wine world, which is this idea of blending old and new product together constantly. Mm. And so we have aspects of the old beer, we have aspects of the newer beer um, that as a blend, let's say there's 500 gallons in there, when we pull some out, we might pull out 30 gallons, we might pull out 120 gallons, and then we refill whatever we took out. And it creates a, an ever-changing, but also very consistent product. So it's used in the wine world, um, and probably to some degree in the spirits world, as a way to, one, embrace a change of a product over time because no iteration is going to be exactly the same as the previous, but also to help create a more consistent product. Anytime you put something in oak barrels, you are embracing a certain amount of risk, mm -hmm. spontaneity, and the kind of a dice roll that mother nature gives you. You know, you might have one oak barrel that's lovely. You might have another oak barrel that you fill at the exact same time from the same batch of, of base beer and your results are totally different. Uh, and so a, a Solera method in a, in a large oak vessel is kind of a way to help ensure some consistency. Wow. That, so, and that's, that's out in the yep. tap room, right? Yes, we see that all the time. And, uh, and just, I, I want to make sure I walk through and then I want to, I want to get back to your home brewing days. Um, I've, I've loved watching the progress of this place. You, you, you were literally back in this room and I could come back a, a few years ago <laughs> yeah. and just get a growler filled. Yeah. And that was all you could do. And then, uh, and then you opened a, a little bit of a sitting area and a little bit of a tap room. And now you have another room to the north. And I think you have plans to extend beyond that. Mm -hmm. And now you have a place up in Mission yep. um, that I think your brother runs. That's right. right. Um, so you're across the state, you have two different locations, uh, but you're still using basically the same recipes yep. and the, and the same brewing techniques and the same water profile. 
That's correct. So we, um, so originally when we started the project, it was my twin brother and I, uh, and then we brought in a couple of other partners as well. Uh, but we had a problem and we weren't really sure how to address it at first, but that problem was that I lived here in Hutchinson mm-hmm. and he lived in Kansas city, but we knew that we were doing this project together. It was either we are doing, we're, we're, open, we're, we're definitely opening breweries. I'm opening a brewery and you are opening a brewery or we're opening one together. But we also knew that neither of us was going to move uh, because we both have established roots in these in each of these in these areas in Kansas City and Hutchinson. Uh, we both have we have family and spouses and, and in-laws in the areas, and so we knew that we weren't going to move. And so the conclusion we came to is let's do one brewery, two locations. Uh, and so we we were able to open up the Hutch Brewery first, and then exactly one year from opening the Hutchinson Brewery, we opened up one in Mission. They are the same brewery. Or it's, it's one business, two locations. Okay. Uh, we split beers back and forth. We have to share all the same recipes. We have the same themes. We have the same ethos. Um, we are very much one business, uh, not just in, in terms of our branding, our legalities, our finances, et cetera, but also in, in our operations. We are one business with two locations. Um, and that's been really, really wonderful. It's been a, a, a fun way to do it. You know, yes, it has some interesting, unique challenges, uh, but at this point, I definitely have no regrets on that. Mm-hmm. Um, our method has always been, uh, you, were, you were commenting about how watching, the bit, watching it grow, how we started with just this one room and we served free samples and growlers and we added a small little tap room with a little bit of seating and then we added, added to that tap room and then it continued to expand and then we expanded to mission. So our model has been built very small and build as we go mm-hmm. and expand as we go. It's it's very common, especially in our industry, to see places open up with hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of dollars of investment. And whether that is, you know, uh, you know, a bank financing it, it's private investment, it's your own personal funds, it's a whole bunch of partners coming together, it's crowdfunding, whatever, whatever the method, whatever the funding model, it's very common to do that. And, you know, build out a crazy big facility that's beautiful and it's polished from day one. And there's nothing wrong with that. I I have to commend anybody that does that because, number one, there's a lot of challenges and risks involved with that. Mm -hmm. But my brother and I and our other partners decided that was not our model. That was not what we wanted to do. We both came from a bootstrap software business where we... uh, Bootstrapping in the tech world is very a very common term that basically just means you, you build it yourself and you self-fund yourself with, with your own sales revenue. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to kind of apply that to the brewery. And so we built really, really small. We basically bought the equipment that we could afford in cash. And then we said, okay, if we could make a little bit of beer and sell it, that beer will fund buying more equipment, more space, fund building a tap room, fund building tables, paying staff, putting HVAC units in, eventually replacing lights that are, you know, half the lights in this room are dead. (laughs) But it's all about the whole idea behind the business is that this is a self-funded, self-supporting business from day one. That's the way that we want to zero debt to the best of our ability. Um, You know, and we took a chance with that because, you know, obviously debt has its own risk, you know, just like anytime that somebody goes out and buys, buys a house or buys a car, yeah. There's risk associated with that. You know, you, you never know what's going to change in your life. You lose your job, you default, whatever. 
there's the same risks when you when you finance a business. We had this, but we also have the same risks of if we self fund everything and we build really small and we bootstrap it. What if we can't generate enough cash flow because we're too small? That was the risk that we decided to take on. But we decided that that risk was better for our own personal tastes than the alternative. Um, we, we kind of asked ourselves a very simple question. Um, well, it's not really a simple question, but it was a really important question, which was, what if we fail? Yeah. What, if, what if we fail after two years? And we agreed that whatever we have paid cash for, we can sell it at a loss and we can walk away. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't walk away when you owe somebody else 400000 million, half a mil, 200,000, whatever it is to finance things. And so we decided we didn't want to be indebted to anybody. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's really been clear to me that that's how you've done it. I mean, that you, um, even not knowing all the details of that, it was very, you know, you're, you've basically worked out of kind of a storage, this whole building that you're in is kind of a a warehouse (laughs) garage, right? It was, it was originally five storage garages to be exact. (laughs) And you started in this back one and then actually way back, you started, uh, your coding business, your programming business. And so you, you did that and then you moved your brewer in here and then you moved into that. So that, that kind of purposeful in very intentional decision to say, but do you, so your risk, I mean, when I, when you tell that story what I hear you say is, um, we're, we're going to take this chance and there is a chance that you're not going to sell yeah. enough beer, right? That people, you're not well, going to like what we make or, you know, or, yeah. you know, nobody can find us or what have you. But people did like what you made. Yeah. And so they were buying it and they, buy, they bought it at a level enough that it allowed you to keep moving yeah. and expanding a little bit and, and moving. Things. So I, I love that story. The other thing I want to ask about is this home brewing process. Cause I think, um, there was a phase where a lot of people were doing home brewing, right? Everybody, yes. Everybody was buying a kit. They were uh, a Mr. Beer, yeah. and they were making their beer at home. Um, but you you were doing that. How did you kind of – were some of those first beers really terrible? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had a bunch that were absolutely atrocious. Um, but we also had a lot that we felt were really good, um, not just because we personally wanted to drink them, but – Okay, so one of the challenges I had early on in homebrewing is I actually could I could not find enough people to help me drink my beer and try it. Oh yeah, I had a problem where I liked brewing much more than I liked drinking, mm-hmm. and so there was one point where I had hundreds of gallons of beer in my basement that I had brewed, and I didn't know what to do with it because I didn't have enough friends or family that were interested in. It, and it wasn't just that they liked or didn't like what I brewed; they simply didn't drink any craft beer at all. Uh, and so it was a little bit of a challenge to get rid of some of it, but what I did and what my brother did and what other partners did is we traveled a lot. We went to a lot of different places. We went to breweries around the world, around the country and not just breweries, but we also went to beer bars and other places and we, we drank a lot of different beers and we had, I feel like we had a really broad understanding and appreciation for different styles of beer and different qualities. And so we knew what was a good beer and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we started making our own, we made a lot of really crappy beer that, you know, we either tortured ourselves by drinking it or we dumped it down the drain or, you know, what have you. But we also knew what a really quality product was. And so when we did get it right, 
in that brewing process, we knew it was right. Uh, and we knew that it was good. Uh, and so we were able to have a high level of confidence in our brewing skills and our, and our knowledge of what a great beer was that when it came time to figure out how to brew it on a, on a bigger scale and brew it for, for public consumption, we really didn't have many worries about, is our beer good? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that might sound a little bit conceited, but it truly, it just came from a lot of experience of going and trying other places. And, you know, my, we used to friends and my, my, my brother and our other partners, we would, we would drive eight hours, hop in the car to go to a bottle release of some obscure brewery down in Illinois mm-hmm. or, you know, down to Texas or up to Nebraska um, for these these places that were supposedly doing world-renowned, cla- world-class beers. And so we'd go get some and yeah. we'd it, see what it was like. But those are all creating data points for you, right? Right. As, as a brewer, you're you're building yes. data points. We, we, had, we had a massive data sheet. <laughs> And did you really? That says like we like this and we like. Oh no, no, we're not. High, we're not nearly organized enough. <laughs> but in your mind, but in our, you had, but our mind, we absolutely. Did. Yeah, you knew what makes it. So, what makes a good beer? I mean, I, there's different kinds of beer. You guys do a sour. We, I hadn't even heard of sour mm-hmm. beers before you guys started making them. Um, like what? What kind of characteristics make a good beer? I know that can't really be universal. It's a little bit of a complicated question because there's so many factors. Uh, you know. Each of us has our own personal tastes. What I like in a beer is going to be different than what you like in a beer is different than what so-and-so likes in a beer. Some people like light beers, some people like dark beers, some people like coffee beers. But if we step away from individual personal preferences for a moment, there are a number of factors that are really important in distinguishing a good beer from a bad beer at a you know statistical chemistry level, if you will. Um, Number one is quality ingredients. You have to have high quality malts. You have to have high quality water. Water is a huge percentage of your beer, uh, you know, 90 plus percent. And so if you have bad water, if it tastes like chlorine, it tastes like chloramines or has other funky characters in it, those characters are gonna carry through. Uh, quality of your hops, are they fresh hops? Are they old hops and they've been oxidized? The quality of your yeast. Yeast is a living organism that is responsible for taking sugars that are available in a beer and turning them into alcohol and also produces a lot of the final flavors and characters and aromas in a finished beer. If you don't have enough yeast, you get a bad fermentation. If you ferment it way too hot, you get a bad fermentation. If you ferment it too cold, you can get a bad fermentation. Uh, There's a lot of different factors. Um, If you expose a finished beer to too much oxygen, if you don't do a quality conditioning time, uh, all of these different factors, you know, if, if we take it back to the bacon analogy for a moment, if we say what makes a good cake versus a bad cake, you know, there's a lot of different things. Your ingredients are one of the most important. Your baking process is clearly important. You know, if you cook it at 700 degrees, you're going to get a crisp. If you cook it at 200, it's going to be gooey inside. Beer uh, is no different. You, you have these parameters that you need to you know, follow through in your fermentation. You have your ingredients and you need to have quality ingredients and you also, you also have to ensure that you allow enough time for all of those things to happen. You know, once again, going back to baking, if we, if we say that we need to bake this cake for 45 minutes at 400 degrees, we can't just bake it at 750 for 20 minutes and assume it's going to come out the same way. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. We can't bake it for two hours at 200 degrees. Beer is, is not that different. Um, so there, there's a lot of factors that go into making a quality beer. 
then there's a lot more nuanced stuff about you know your, your ratios, your the, how much bitterness do you have in a beer, how much sugar do you have in a beer, how much of your your dark malts versus your light malts, your your high alpha acid hops versus your low alpha acid hops, uh, the uh, all of these different things. You know, again going back to any any baking or cooking, just just because there's salt in, in a in a cookie recipe doesn't mean you want to dump a cup in there. Yeah. It's not going to be good. Beer is the same way. Just because we have a certain amount of hops or malt in one doesn't mean we want to triple it and still have a good beer. Um, so there's certain parameters that we want to follow. We have a lot of guidelines to help us uh, you know, know if a beer is going to turn out well. There's a lot of history about making specific beer styles, you know, between making American IPAs or British IPAs or American stouts or German pilsners or American lagers. We have a lot of guidelines from history that help us know kind of where we need to go at, where we need to target. Um, and then a lot of it is also experience of yeah. just, you know, we've made a lot of beer, we've drank a lot of beer, and we have a general analysis of, or a, our experience helps us determine, like, is this beer that we just finished this week, is it good? You know, we have a lot of times where we have a conversation about, I don't personally like this beer, but that doesn't mean it's a bad beer. Mm -hmm. The question I need to ask is, is this beer good? And is it a high quality that we want to serve? Because we all have our own personal tastes. Yeah. Um, I really like big hoppy IPAs. You may not. That doesn't mean that your distaste of one or my preference for one are important in actually answering, is this a good beer? Because people do have a certain flavor. Like I don't like hoppy IPAs. I don't mind the citrusy IPAs. Uh, double IPAs usually work pretty well for me, but the real hoppy IPAs I don't like. Um, so people do have different flavors, yes. and so that's not your own. Per and you talked earlier about the home brewing and about uh, not having enough people to try it out, and that, that's really important because you can't be the only voice on that, right? right? You have to have other people who say, "No, I like this beer." You might not like it, yeah. but but this is a good beer. Perfect example is I don't really like the beer that you're drinking right now. The honey saison, yeah. It's a love, but I can tell you I don't like it because it's not my personal palate. Yeah. But I can tell you it's a good beer. I believe it's balanced. I believe it's well fermented and it's well constructed. And that for people that do prefer that really bright, effervescent, florally character that that beer has, it's wonderful. Yeah. But it's not my personal palate. But I'm still going to put it on tap because I can, I over the course of the last ten years or so have enough experience in beer that I can tell you it's a good beer, but I can also tell you bluntly that I don't personally want to drink it. Yeah. So an another couple of things I wanted to ask you about, your beers are named after birds, yes. and I want to make sure we talk about why that is. The, the short version is that my, my brother and I are nature geeks. Uh, we, we grew up uh, living out in the middle of the country, and we're very fortunate to have the freedom to run and explore in the woods. And our parents took us up into, uh, into the mountains a lot out in Colorado and, and other parts of the country. And we just developed a love of the natural world. And when we started creating the brewery and started working on it, we knew that we needed some kind of branding theme. We knew that we needed, you know, something to name our beers after some rhyme or reason. And birds is what we picked up. It's, it's just what we landed on. Um, 
And it's been really fun because it also plays a little bit of homage back to the name of the brewery as well. So we're, uh, the name is Sandhills Brewing. And that's after a region of Kansas that we grew up in just north of Hutchinson. That is the Sandhills. And it's a very unique part of the state that is truthfully like no other part of the state, at least from like a uh, geological uh, perspective, as well as you know, the, some, of, some of the wildlife that we have, some of the plants that we have are different here than they are in most other parts of the state because our soil composition is almost all sand. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really wanted to play how much of that to home and to the, the love of nature that we had as, as my brother and I and as our family as a whole. I, I've always loved that, though, and I love that you have these pictures of birds around here and that I can always know. Yeah. Um, and it makes it easy for me because I know that the... Um, the sparrows, one kind of beer, and the metal orcs, another yeah. kind of beer, and I and I get all that. You know, it, it was also a little bit of a of a cheat, if you will, because it kind of took up a little bit. Uh, it gave us an easy way to come up with beer names, as opposed to trying to be super creative. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pick on anybody, uh, but there's a lot of beer names out there that are either really long about this, you know something ridiculous or fun and they could be really memorable my brother and I are not that creative people <laughs> so you know we relied on you know the ornithologists of the world the scientists of, of the past to, to take all of these bird names and they've given us a list because we have a you know we have all these different birds that are native to Kansas and native to the US and we've tried to use birds that are native to this area uh -huh. initially and then we slowly kind of branched out and picked ones that either migrate through or that, you know, we might see once in a while. Or maybe we'll very intentionally take one that's, you know, from the South American tropics. Yeah. Uh, but we have a pool of names to choose that from. You could choose and so from. we don't have to be creative. Uh, and I know when I see the barred owl or I see the barred owl soaked in barrel yeah. or an oak barrel, um, I know that's that's probably going to be my beer. Yeah. You know. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about is um, in all of this, you talked at the beginning about kind of getting into this at the right time of the craft beer movement. I want to talk a little bit about that because for years and years and years in this country, it was largely Budweiser, um, Coors, Michelob, and that was what you got. You went to the liquor store, mm -hmm. that's what you got. And the world has changed dramatically since then, right? Not only with places like yours, but um, you go to the liquor store, and there's a variety of different types of beers. You can stock your fridge with any number of kinds of beers. Um, what, what do you, what do you, do you have any thoughts on what has created that? I mean, for years, it seemed like people were happy to drink Budweiser. They were either a Budweiser person or a Coors person. Maybe somebody was a Michelob or a Miller person. Um, but now we have hundreds and hundreds of varieties of beer. Every town I visit, there's a, there's, I, I look for local breweries Kind of like we talked earlier, what what kind of created that? You know, there's there's going to be so many different factors, and I think there's there's no way that you know we could pinpoint one or two reasons. And so I'm just going to spitball a few that come to mind. Um, so one is at least when it comes to small towns and small communities, you know, like for example, the reason that we at Sandhills Brewery, as this itty bitty little brewery in Hutchinson, Kansas, exists is going to be different from the reason that, say, Firestone Walker, which is still considered a craft brewery, a small local brewery, they're massive. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason they exist and maybe started is probably going to be different than ours. But 
there's from a customer perspective today we have a much greater sense of wanting to support the small and the local business um, and I, I really do believe that a lot of that has to do with the cascading effects of the internet um, you know if we really want to get down to where that came from um, the internet has been extremely important in in helping recultivate a sense of local and a sense of identity. Um, there is better access than ever, once again, because of the internet, to learning new skills. And so, you know, it used to be, if we go back X number of decades, that if you were a person in a small town and you wanted to learn how to, how to become become a brewer, you had to travel a long, a long ways to, you know, go and learn from a master somewhere, uh, go and learn from a, from the, the regional or the national brewer. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. Uh, we really, any, anybody with an internet connection can learn how to brew beer, can learn to make bread, can learn to make coffee, can learn to make t-shirts, you know, what, whatever your craft is, it's accessible. And so there's a, I think, accessibility of information has a huge amount to do with the proliferation of not just craft beer, but all of these other businesses, this, this resurgence of appreciating local, because no, not only do we have a better appreciation of local, we have a better access to people to be able to create the businesses mm -hmm. in those local places. We have a lot of, we have a lot of exposure now to things that are not normal to us. You know, we we use we always claim that you know Hutchinson is a is a Bud Light town or a Coors Light or a Miller Light. You know, it's a light beer town. And I remember that was one of the big conversations that we had when we were first opening up. But we as consumers have a much greater access to breaking out of our comfort zone. Yeah. And, and again, I'm gonna I do believe a lot of that comes back to the to the internet. And some of this is my own bias because I do come from the from the software world, and I uh, ran a software company for a long time, and I worked exclusively on the internet, and so I'm a little bit biased. I'm not gonna lie, I have uh, I have rose-colored glasses probably, yeah. but I, but I think it's really important still. Um, we have we have trends that we follow around the country, and you know, regardless of what industry we're in, whether we're in fashion or we're in beer or we're in food, there's trends that happen all around the country. And one of the things that's really interesting about living in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is just about as close to the center of the country as, as we can get. Yeah. You know, we're not quite, but we're pretty close. Very, very close. Is that we have an opportunity to watch trends from, from east to west, north and south, etc. Um, and watch as those trends come in. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed that I think is probably measurably true is that trends start on the coast. They start on the periphery and they move their, they move their way in. And so, you know, we see things that start in California and start in New York or start in Florida and start in Washington, uh, Washington state or Portland, et cetera. And they move in and they come into Idaho and they come into, they come into Virginia and then they come, they come to Kentucky. They come, come into Michigan, et cetera. They, they slowly work their way in uh -huh. and eventually they make their way to Kansas. <laughs> and so, you know, as, as a business owner, one of the things that's 
that's kind of convenient about that is that we've been able to watch these trends. Yeah. Not only from like what businesses are working or not working, but also of like, okay, so in this in this brewery business, which seems pretty cool, it seems fun, and I like beer, uh, we can watch as these trends come in, see what's popular before it's ever even a thing here. Yeah. Um, but you see, you see what they did on the coast, you see the mistakes they made, you see the way yeah. consumers reacted to it. And it, and it does. Living in Kansas sometimes has its disadvantages, yeah. right? But sometimes it has its advantages. Absolutely. And the advantage is, is that you can watch all the mistakes other people made. Yeah. You can see how consumers respond. And you can say, when I do this in Kansas, we have like a whole library of mistakes and successes yep. that we can build on, right? So let me give you an example of that. Is when we first started working on this brewery, we had decided that we were going to open up exclusively making barrel-aged sour beers. That was our plan. That was our game plan. We had seen a couple, there was a couple of breweries around the country, predominantly in, in California and on the East Coast, that had done it to seemingly wild success. And we were like, that's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. We love sour beer. It's something that we feel that we are very good at doing, that we have a good grasp and understanding of. Let's do that. The fault in that plan, however, is a once again, recognizing that trends have to come in and they take years to come in. You know, if you imagine something that starts on, on one coast, it might be 15 years before it gets here to the center of the country, like almost to the center of the center as we can get. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we thought we were going to start and do just okay sours. And then we were like, we realized actually that's probably a terrible idea because while we will find a few customers that definitely want that and latch onto it and become ardent supporters, we also have to recognize the community and we have to understand the community that we're opening up in and what our average audience is. And we need, we also, we realize a very simple truth, which is every person that comes through our door that doesn't have something that they like is probably not going to come back. Yeah. Which it, in hindsight, seemed like a stupidly obvious duh, <laughs> but but you know as we're building this, as we're slowly building this business plan, thinking about it, that was not the early early assumption, and and so when we when we realized that, which was thankfully prior to us opening, we did we did pivot and say actually what we should do is we should target a broad a, a broad menu of of drinkers, a broad palate. And we should try to make something that is approachable for most everybody. We recognize that we are in a, in a Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light town. We need to make sure that we have something approachable to them. We also need to make sure that we have something that is slightly out of their comfort zone for anybody that wants to take the opportunity to expand their palate, expand their horizon of what they know beer to be. Yeah. And then we also need to have something that is at the far end the, the opposite world yeah. for the people that are super adventurous or, you know, or that the ones that already have already come in and already, you know, have, have ventured there before. Absolutely. And I will tell you, um, even though I will say you, nobody makes a sour beer quite like you guys do. I still just don't like sour beers. And that's I just okay. don't. That, that uh, is something that we knew to be true from the beginning is that there are people that, there are people that have a sour and immediately like, this is all I want to drink. Yeah. I was one of those people. Yeah. Uh, we know that there are people that slowly build up an appetite for them. We know that there are people that will just never, ever get there. Uh, and there are people that maybe will eventually get there. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it takes it takes all types of palates and, 
I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't open that way because it wouldn't have worked well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's but 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 to to your kind of to your point on that, the the people who didn't know about sour beers who tasted it probably for the first mm-hmm. time with you, um, they love it. Yeah, they, they like you've created. You've created a sour market here that didn't exist which, before. Which is really interesting because, you know, it, it's, as I look back on it, it's, it's funny to, to say we originally wanted to be a sour only brewery. We realized that was a mistake. So we opened up and we, we make some of everything now. But our best selling beer, which surprised the heck out of me, is our tart wheat sour beer. Yeah. And, you know, so we originally planned to make sours, decided that was a terrible idea. And then it turns out that our sour beer is our best-selling beer. Yeah, people uh, love it. Yeah, it totally surprised us. And it, and it created, it did really create a market that yeah. didn't exist before because nobody was like, what's a sour beer? I, yeah. I didn't know what and a sour I, beer I was. think that's one of the reasons why it did work is because it was something that was so radically different than yeah. what the expectations were that there's a lot of people that latch onto that. You know, they, they get surprised and they realize that was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, that's the thing that sticks for them. That's awesome. Well, normally I have a last question for people that's something along the lines of what is one thing that you wish people knew that they don't know if, or they could know if they didn't do this. But I have a different question I sure. want to ask you. Um, do you have a favorite beer? Here that we make, or it just in general? In general. Ooh, uh, it's actually a really not straightforward answer because I have many, many favorites. I tend to pick my favorites based off of certain experiences or memories associated with them. So, you know, if you ask me what is the favorite beer that we make here, I'm going to tell you it's Bardo. And that's because it's the beer that I want to drink the most often, but it's also because that's the beer that I. Uh, that my wife, it was her favorite uh-huh. and that it was the first one that I convinced her that she liked something that was darker in color. Yeah. Uh, but then if you ask me, you know, what is my favorite beer that's made from around the world? I might tell you a beer called Atrial Rubicite from down in Jester King, uh, which is in Austin, Texas, because the experience that I had drinking that beer for the first time was so magical and amazing. I go back and have that beer now and I don't, I don't enjoy it the same way. Yeah. And so sometimes it's a memory. Sometimes it's a what was created, you know, and then other times I think it's, you know, it's chickadee, which is our Berliner Weiss, our tart wheat beer, because it's our best selling beer. It's the thing that, you know, kind of made our name, if you will. Um, And then, you know, other days it's uh, it's basic Pilsner from Casey Beer Co. Or because I just love classic German Pilsners. Uh, And so I don't really have a favorite is is the is the honest answer. Um, I have beers that fit moods i have beers that fulfill wonderful memories and like times and place i can think of like a time in a hotel room with a friend at a conference where i drank a um a big like double or triple barrel aged imperial stout from deschutes brewing up in up in portland oregon or bend oregon and had a wonderful evening after that that memory will stick with me forever. And I'll always think about that beer in the time that me and that friend had, uh, we were supposed to be working. And instead we're like, let's sit around and drink, drink a crazy beer. Uh, but you know, that's not my favorite beer, yeah. but, but I love the memory associated with it. So, well, and I think it, this is a thing that we, we didn't really have much time to get into, but I think it's, we can kind of talk about this a little bit. 
Um, the thing about beer is beer is not just beer, right? Mm-hmm. Beer is fellowship. Yeah. Beer, beer is memories. Beer is bonding. Beer yes. is um, opening up. Beer is a lot more than just beer. Well, you know, I think a good answer to that is we did not open a brewery because we wanted to make beer. Yeah. We opened a brewery because we wanted to create a community space that provided this, the type of space and environment that we felt was missing from our area and that we wanted to be part of. Beer is this, beer is the product that brings people in, but it's not the thing that makes people stay. Yeah, yeah. And I know one of the things I appreciate about your place is that I come in here, I, I order a beer, but there's eight people, ten people in this building at any given point in time that I know, that I can talk to, and uh, I feel totally yeah. comfortable. It's here. a community. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we first really started thinking about it, uh, I'm going to say something that's really cheesy, but um, I remember a phone call that I had with my brother when I was first, when, when, when we were first kind of committing to, are we going to do this or are we not? And I remember calling him because I had found the building and I found that it was for rent. And I thought, I think this might be the space that we could use. Is it, is it crazy to try to open a brewery here? You know, it might take us a couple of years. It's probably going to be a lot more expensive than we think it is, but do you think we can do it? Uh, and I mean, he literally gave me the, the, the super cheesy answer of, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have a community space in Hutchinson, Kansas, that was also, that ser- served the beer that I wanted to, to drink and I wanted to share our product, our, um, you know, my passion with, and, and our passion with our customers. And I wanted to provide it in a space that I wanted to spend time in. I, when, when we moved back here uh, in 2013, I missed those community spaces that I used to have where, you know, so many people knew each other and so many people came in as, you know, this is, this is their bonding time. This is their place for community, for, for sitting down and having a conversation. This is their meeting place. This is where they, you know, they bring their laptop to work when they need to get out of the house or they're out of the office or they're meeting a colleague or they're meeting a, you know, uh, having a business meeting or whatever the purpose is, that was the space. And I didn't feel like it existed here. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to create it. And you did. And I'm really glad that you did. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> it's turned out great for me because okay. I, I, uh, I love your beer and I love your space. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that, that's all that we wanted. That's what we wanted to create. It's is, uh, you know, create a space that, that people like yourself and many others would come in and have that type of, of feeling about it. Well, thank you for doing that. And thank you for taking some time to sit down and visit of with course. me today. It's been my pleasure, Jason. Thank you. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. 
You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.